Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 105 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And in this episode, we hear the incredible story of Red Wedge from its co-founder, Anna Joy David. This podcast is packed full of tales of collaboration and a shared passion for fashion and politics that all kicked off with Paul Weller hearing a radio interview with Anna Joy from a CND rally in the early 80s. We'll hear about how they formed a tight friendship and incredible working relationship, leading to activity in the 1980s with the Jam, the Star Council and the creation of Red Wedge, an organisation dedicated to getting young people involved in politics through the popular arts. A really different angle from what we've heard on the podcast so far. So let's get into it. Anna Joy David, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's really great to be here. First thing I have to ask about is your first name, because it's so unusual, but it's lovely. The word joy in any name is terrific, but adding it <laughs> oh, in to Anna is beautiful. Oh, that's, that's really lovely. If my mum and dad were alive, they'd be really happy to hear that. Actually, it's a really long-standing family name so it was a great grandmother's names and in fact there's a slightly funny story about it because when I was born my mum actually named me Hazel this is the first time I've actually told this story oh I love an exclusive (laughs) an exclusive for about three days and then my great-grandmother died my maternal great-grandmother died and my name was changed and she chose Hazel because it was after her doctor (laughs) in the UK so uh, you know, I don't know how to react to, you know, the loss of my great grandmother, but I'm really, really grateful and proud to have her name. So, Lovely. Yeah, oh, I'm, I'm glad name. I asked about that. Now, yeah. so brilliant. Um, right now, as this is the Paul Weller fan podcast, we should kick off and talk about your connection with Paul. But there's so much stuff to cover. I don't know how we're going to do this in the time we've got this because there's such a we'll massive amount talk about here right but when, when were you first aware of Paul Weller because it would have been the jam but were you a fan yeah. was that your kind of bag music wise no not really I have to be completely honest I didn't really know much about him I obviously knew of the jam and I was really big into fashion from quite a young age so I was like aware of them but I wasn't big into music so I had kind of helped set up uh, the youth wing of the campaign for nuclear disarmament, which was like a really important movement at the start of the 80s, from the late 70s into the 80s. I mean, it really collided with the Thatcher years. And I think that the campaign for nuclear disarmament sort of represented a lot more than 
just its sort of goals and missions. It was a sort of start of a cultural shift for, you know, two generations into the UK. And he heard me speak at a rally with Lord Fenner Brockway and Bruce Kent, who, you know, I'd like to pay great tribute to. He, he passed away about a week ago. He was a great guy, he was very kind to me. I wasn't from a political family or even overtly political. I just felt that you know, it wasn't a good idea to continue to develop nuclear bombs and felt that a generation was going to be seriously let down if we didn't get cultural change in the country. And he heard me speak at rally and made contact and said, I'd like to help. Very quickly, I sort of got familiar with, you know, who the jam were and I really liked him. I just felt that he was a completely genuine down-to-earth person. His motives were really straightforward, like he wasn't complicated to deal with at all. It was just a pleasure. We just formed this great friendship and like working relationship, which sort of endured over a decade. So that's how we met. Because this, this was towards the end of the jam, wasn't it, as well? So the jam comes yeah. to end eighty two, end of 82, and then the Style Council fairly soon after. And I think it was a, maybe like a year after you had that first conversation, Paul played this Festival for Peace in Brockwell Park, which was... Yeah, the jam did something before that, though. Ah, okay. we, put, we put them on the back of a loader on a campaign for nuclear disarmament rally, and they played. That was our first thing together. That's not often sort of noted or recorded, but that was, yeah, a really early, impromptu, spontaneous thing that they did. But then, yeah, then I organised Brockwell Park and Paul headlined that. We had John Peel DJing and Madness there and about 300,000 people. I had no idea how many people would turn up or what would happen. But I knew, you know, I was only 17 myself, you know, I just knew that there had to be an alliance with popular culture and young people to sort of represent a different view of Britain. That that I was sort of clear about from quite a young age. And yeah, so we did Brockwell Park and it was like a huge success. But I don't think any of us sort of went into it understanding how big it would be. Yeah, And I guess at that point, how much of you were convinced or aware that actually, you know, the collision between music or the arts, you know, including music and that, obviously, politics was the way to go, was the way to go to get young people interested in this? Because a lot of people have talked about listening to, you know, talking on the podcast, reading stuff about all of this. You know, people who are kids at the time have talked about this being their introduction to political awareness. Yeah. These kind oh, of concepts, it, right? Oh, 100%. And, you know, I don't think anyone can underestimate the importance of the start of that cultural movement. It wasn't just a political movement. Off the back of it, Tony Blair was elected. We were all his children. We brought a different civil and social agenda through that cultural view of what Britain could look like. You know, so these things are all joined up. Live Aid wouldn't have happened without it. The Nelson Mandela concerts that we did with Jerry wouldn't have happened without it. The early Glastonbury's that I was so proud to be involved with wouldn't have happened without it. People shouldn't underestimate the importance and crucial role that Paul Weller played in spurring a whole generation to look at Britain and represent Britain in a very different way, while still being very patriotic and loving very much the country that we are, you know, and who we wanted to become. I don't think that People should underestimate the sort of hope and ambition and can-do attitude of young people at that time. Like I completely reject the idea that it was all doom and gloom. I think it was a very gloomy environment with massive industrial changes and upheavals going on with a very kind of hopeful can-do generation that was very much culturally represented by Paul. He talked quite a lot about how this divide between North and South came up a lot in the, the, the conversation I've heard with Paul and people like Steve White and stuff and talking about yeah. Maggie Thatcher's time. You know, by the end of her time, there weren't really any of these kind of vital industries left. It really was you know, ripping up all this industrial history. That's the bleak side of things. For so many people, you, you know, we t- we'll touch on the miners' strike in a second because these policies have just had such a massive negative effect on so many people, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, the face of Britain was changed. You know, you can't underestimate that. It's if you take 300 years of industrial evolution and you take it apart in 30 years, what are you going to get? 
you're going to get chaos, right? You're going to get the loss of community, the loss of identity, the loss of you know, of understanding the pathways of how you live your life, not just economically, but socially, culturally, how you build communities. The whole underpinning of British society was basically removed from literally from under us. And we moved very quickly from an industrial capital model into a financial capital model where everything all of a sudden became about commodities, what we could sell rather than what we could produce. And I think that we kind of came into the middle of that to say, hang on a minute, there's a better way to do this. And we did that through culture and represented a different side to Britain that hadn't yet been created, but we were at the start of it. I think that's very, very important for people to understand. There's a great quote. You mentioned Jerry Dammers a second ago. There's a great quote from him I saw, which I'll read to you. He said, Wars, and he's talking about the Star Council, Wars Come Tumbling Down, the song, but also the fact it was a biblical reference. So he says, biblical reference to when they blew the trumpets and the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Archaeologists now believe the walls were undermined at first, so it wasn't the music. But that's a good point. Music on its own isn't going to work. You have to work with non-musical people and political movements that are connected. And just writing a song about this kind of stuff is not going to have the impact you need. And we'll talk about Red Wedge. It was about having the right people involved and the right minds in the room, I guess, to have these conversations and make oh, decisions. Yeah. No, 100%. I mean, look, you know, if you want to sort of make changes, you have to bring together alliances of people. Ideas aren't formed just by one person in the room. They're formed by collaboration and sharing. And I think one of the reasons why people want to sort of document this period is because I don't think that you can underestimate the impact of its effect and later success in changing the narrative and bringing a confidence to Britain, which we didn't see immediately, but in its second iteration through the Blair years, we did see it. Mm. And the social agenda that was set by Red Wedge and others basically came from that. We defined that narrative. Someone else delivered it, but it was definitely defined by us. And I don't think you can underestimate Paul in that role, Jerry, for sure, the Communards, Madness and others, because we celebrate civil partnerships and the rights of the LGBT community. But we were at the coalface of defining what those rights should be and what they should look like. And, you know, that gave confidence to a Labour government in 97 to legislate. And that cultural outpouring, if that wouldn't have existed between that combination of thinkers and ideas and culture coming together, political ideas, you know, working on around rather than inside the circle, around the circle, I, I don't think we would have we we would have seen it, but not how it emerged. And it's now so much part of the sort of institutional thinking in our society, and that is the way to embed change through institutional change. And yeah, I, I feel immensely proud about that. Yeah, but, but the thing that's remarkable is, I mean. You're all kids, really, aren't you? I mean, you mentioned like when you're organising the rallies and st- rallies yeah, stuff. Like seventeen. Kids. I wonder now if there were a group of kind of 18, 20, 21-year-olds who were organising that kind of thing, whether they'd be embraced by the powers that be, whether they'd be embraced by any political party in that way, I don't know. But it's incredible what you did as, as, as youngsters, really. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, it's a sort of mix of naivety. And I think that you've got a group of people in the room who were basically can-do people. You know, the chemistry was right. Certainly between me and Paul and, you know, Richard Coles, Jimmy Somerville, Jerry, some of the madness, the chemistry was definitely right. I mean, obviously my association was with Paul. You know, we followed our relationship through to a number of different activities and campaigns, some through solid bonds that weren't to do with other things. It was very much Paul's agenda in working with communities and young people and the whole fancy movement, which today would be like having podcasts, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and some other musical collaborations, you know. We were very blessed. I think we had a really good combination of people. And then Neil Kinnock stepped in and said, I'm up for this, you know, and he really was, you know, what a great guy. So, yeah, so it took it into a slightly okay, different yeah. environment. Yeah, and a big turning point for you at that time then, kind of shifting, moving more into party politics, I guess, in a way, right? 
Yeah, I think some of us were a bit nervous about that, walking into the unknown, our sort of work in culture, music, theatre, Lenny Henry, Dawn French, Jennifer Saunders and others came on board, Robbie Coltrane, that was honestly a pleasure to work with. And I think there was just a bit of a nervousness around working in a party political rather than independent political environment. There was always a pull and a push. But I said to Paul, this was very much the way to go, that we had to convert what we were doing into helping this very honourable person in Neil Kinnock, who was trying to change the Labour Party to be a point for young people to coalesce around and that we had to create a platform for them to be able to have their say, not without criticism, but for them to be able to have their say. And I think that that was a very brave thing for us to do, really. Yeah. Um, 1985, this is, you talk of all the characters involved in this, this is brilliant. So Paul Weller becomes president of the British Youth Council's International Youth Year with Julie Julie Waters, which is just brilliant. And you were yeah. setting up stuff for them, weren't you? Wasn't it? You, you were kind of the driving force. I went to work for them. Yeah. I went to work for them uh, just for a year to head up their development. I think it was a bit before 1985, actually. So it was International Youth Year. And I went to work for them to head up their development and very much felt that this was something that he should do with Julie. And it was so rewarding to meet young people from the UK, from all backgrounds, walks of life, seeing a level of really, really bad circumstances. You know, not all political, some very personal that we kind of understand today to be like mental health challenges, disability challenges, that were very much not on the agenda then in the central kind of core of like society's thinking. It was very much on the margins in the beginning of big environmental issues and young campaigns from young people, which would later surface through things like Greenpeace and other environmental campaigns. But I think it was definitely the start of a journey of both of us together and really great to work with Julie, who's very much a champion of accessibility. And I think that's what the year was sort of about. It was about, you know, shining a torch on young people and what they were doing all over the world and their hopes and specifically in Britain, which is where we were representing, to make the case for accessibility to young people into all the different halls and journeys of society and pathways. And I think it was definitely the start of a very strong working relationship for me and Paul. Yeah. So around that time, I think one of the first things was the the Jobs for Youth tour. Um, That's right. So what, you actually go out on the road with them? You're on the tour bus, eh? Yeah, I was on the tour bus, yeah, sitting in the back. Watching um, John Weller fleece everybody at cards like everybody else, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. And Kenny Wheeler, you know. <laughs> Paul's tour manager, who was brilliant. You know, without his team and infrastructure, a lot of it wouldn't happen. It takes a lot of people to build sellout tours. They need to be recognised, you know. So, yeah, I was sitting on the bus and would go out and, you know, Paul would introduce me at the beginning of each gig and I'd go out and sort of say a few words about why we were there, what we were doing, what I thought our agenda should be, and then the guys would go on. So basically began to get a really big following of young people and community groups around the country. It was almost like an alternative youth parliament by default, you know, by accident of people contacting us. And I remember one day John Weller saying to me when I went into Solid Bond Studios, I've set you up an office over there because we've got so much posts now, you actually have to start dealing with it. Like if we were, <laughs> if we were on Twitter and social media, you know, it would have gone into the stratosphere. But there were sacks of posts of community groups, young people doing things. And we basically became a lightning rod for young people who were setting up groups, setting up local campaigns, setting up local communities, setting up local bands to record, looking for recording space, the beginnings of pirate radio, a whole mesh of like culture and community groups trying to raise money to fund youth theatre, right through to disability groups. He, bless him, took up the challenge and I just plonked myself in there a couple of days a week, sort of answer people, get back to as 
to people and to try and get Paul to get out to meet these people. So it almost became like a sort of alternative forum to what was going on inside political parties. You know, it was very dynamic. Wow. And also, I mean, it sounds like hugely exciting because there must have been a feeling of you've got momentum. This is, we're building something yeah, here. it's a lot of hard work as well, you know. And I remember Paul always saying to me, you're so serious, you're so serious. I said, it's, you know, it's the way I am. I can't help it, but that's how we're built it's like DNA you know such a young person and my daughter always said to me you know do you ever felt you kind of like lost your sort of youth and I suppose in a way I probably did lose out on a on some bits of what they you know what young people do but I kind of just ran with it at the time you don't think about it do you so yeah. It's mad, isn't it? Because also, this is a number one artist as well, right? So, you know, The Jam have had number one albums. Yeah. Star Council, our favourite shop around that time, is number one. You know, it's not like, you know, this is a guy on the top of his career, isn't it? It's Absolutely. Crazy. And that is why, you know, he deserves in the history books the utmost respect because... I mean, from a commercial point of view, he had the most to lose, let's be honest about it. And he completely stood by who he was, but in a very accessible an open way. He never, ever threw politics down people's throats. If, if some of his fans weren't into it and just said, concentrate on the music, he'd say, fair enough. You know, I mean, I haven't seen Paul for f- quite a few years now, but he was never, ever like that. He was right. always delightful to everybody. He sorts of himself, he sorts about uh, being an angry young man. You know, there were a lot of things yeah. that his go. And I imagine there were some cracking debates between you and Paul and Billy Bragg at times as well. This kind of great triangle, I imagine, the three of you. Yeah, there was a triangle. But there was also a lot of conversations with just me and Paul about politics, about the direction of a country, about what was important for the future. And I think Billy sort of came into it a bit later through Red Wedge. And, you know, I had my own conversations with Bill as well. But yeah, there was this triangle for a while, 100% about the kind of shape and direction of where we thought the country should go, what Red Wedge's focus should be around what we now understand to be social justice, around race and equality, music and the role of music. Lorna G joined us, who's amazing, and Junior. Thanks very much to Paul's relationship with them around social justice rights like LGBT. They just were not on the agenda and they weren't on Labour's agenda either. And Red Wedge shifted them into that agenda so people like Tony Blair were not an accident yeah we'll get on to that because I think that's fascinating how Mm. you know how sometimes people talk about the fact that Labour didn't win that election with Neil Kinnock and therefore Red Wedge wasn't a success but that's not the case in the slightest yeah and we'll talk more about that but let's talk about Red Wedge and how that started off then because it seemed like a hugely optimistic and positive movement you've got some amazing people on board but the purpose of it wasn't just about Labour, from at least from Paul's point of view, was it? It was about no. more about engaging the young people and in, in, in politics. Yeah, it was about people actually understanding the value of democracy and the right and the importance of voting, having a voice, never losing your voice. I think that was, yeah. You know, I mean, Paul can speak for himself, but you know, certainly at the time from talking with him, that was hugely important to Paul and to have a different vehicle to express that, which we'd never seen in the UK before or mm. or anywhere, really. This sort of alliance of culture, popular culture, and a kind of policy coming together, leaving aside the parties of what we thought was important to sort of build this vision, uh, which I think was really ambitious. And I think Red Wedge was a very ambitious thing. It was run by very ambitious people. So I think it was very, that was very much the starting point. And if we could give Labour a platform, you know, their MPs were held to account, you know, and Neil was the leader to through our day events and through community events and community engagement. They were held to account. We'd have hundreds of young people turning up, five, six hundred people turning up to sort of talk to hear politicians and people in music and, and the and the wider arts, comedy, film, um, to to have a conversation. So even to just for Red Wedge to be able to create that platform was a huge success in itself. And it also gave a platform to showcase what young people were doing in Newcastle, Durham, Birmingham, Dudley, Wolverhampton, Liverpool, and the Forest of Dean. Do you know what I mean? So I think that to just say that it was a vehicle 
to get Labour elected was a really, really misunderstands the point. It actually helped to redefine the Labour Party as well in terms of its narrative, its cultural appeal. We helped to raise two generations of people who would then become Labour voters and with that agenda. And I don't think people should underestimate that. I think Neil Kinnock, without him and his presence, you wouldn't have seen this big shift over. Yes, there were circumstances inside the Labour Party with the untimely and sad death of John Smith, which obviously brought in a new generation. You know, these things happen. But that generation were looking at what was happening and preceding them. You can't help but be influenced by that. Why do you think DCMS, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport came along? Because of the work that Neil Kinnock, myself and others did to pave the way for the formation of that very important ministry. These things are all joined up. Yeah, and less said about where that's going at the moment in terms of that department yeah. there, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about Channel 4 maybe on this in a bit. The other thing I was going to touch on around this, I mean, presumably this is taking you right out of your comfort zones, and certainly from the musician side of things, and you know, yeah. like Paul and Billy and people like that, right? Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, we've never done anything like that before. Prior to that, Paul and I were doing a lot of work together around single issues and community work and supporting young people's cultural projects. And this really, really did take us out of our natural habitat into something very new. So I think we were sort of navigating our way through it on a day by day and we were all you know we were all very young I mean I was just 20 22 you know <laughs> that's nuts um, that's nuts yeah and that first tour so Paul financed the first tour I think I'm right in saying and one of the views on it was they wanted the gigs to be like big proper gigs correct me if I'm wrong but there was a perception that this couldn't be done that you guys couldn't do this so initially the tickets didn't really sell that well because it seemed like what you were trying to do was impossible and then suddenly it was front page of Melody Maker front page of NME and it sold out completely and it was obviously a huge success but the logistics of putting this together. I mean, you had some huge artists on board, but the logistics of putting this yeah. together must have been hard for Kenny and the team. It, yeah. it was, and you know, all credit to Paul's team because, you know, without them, it wouldn't have happened. Let's just be clear about that. And John's blessing, uh, John Weller and Kenny and Dave, you know, and others, they pulled it together logistically, which is not an easy thing to do. And then to bring in people, Lloyd Cole would join, then the Smiths, you know, people were coming in uh, for different bits of the first tour. We owe a great debt of gratitude for like what was going on at the NME at the time as well, under Neil Spencer's stewardship as editor, because we collided with a generation of journalists who were very, very switched on, who were beginning to sort of like talk about British black music for the first time, rights in music began to sort of formulate into the agenda, into the mindset. And this coming together, this timely coming together, which is what needs to happen in politics of great journalism, a generation of journalists who were astoundingly good and us coming together, I think really kind of helped to formulate a modern narrative it was a different way of what Britain could look like. And then people like Robert Elms and people like that, the whole house scene also coming on board a bit later. And I think that people shouldn't underestimate the wave that that brings to sort of begin to change mindsets and narratives and the way people approach things, the way people see things, even though it's not part of the institutional framework of Britain at that time. But it very, very much begins to set a different tone, a different way of what Britain could look like. I don't think people should underestimate that. And I think that's what kind of sold it out and this confidence that it exuded, you know, when everything else around was very, very difficult for people, very big changes. People were quite rightly sort of scared. Unemployment, youth unemployment was absolutely massive. And we were seeing the unpicking of a society that people had a relationship with emotionally, culturally, families, a steady income, all of which was evaporating. And this was kind of emerging. So there's two sort of big counter positions 
appearing in society. And also yes. that, that change was being done to you rather than with you, right? So it wasn't yeah. something you had as people had a say about. It was no. just something that was in, imposed on. Here's, here's the poll tax. Yeah. Is this, you know, we're shutting yeah. down the mines. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Any conversation yeah. about it? Oh, no, right. Okay. It's just happening. Okay. Yeah. When you do that after 300 years of gentle industrial evolution, you are going to get massive payback. I mean, we're, we, we can talk about where we are today. But, you know, the trajectory is very clear, except for tech, which has stepped in to that trajectory in an unexpected, not completely unexpected way, but the pace of it is mm. perhaps, yeah. We should talk about the gigs. So, the, I mean, you mentioned some of the yeah. lineup, people like Johnny Marr, Lloyd Cole, Gary yeah. Kemp came along with a couple Gary, of Gary, yeah. Yeah, Gary Madness. Um, last night in Newcastle, Morrissey turns up. And for everything that we think about Morrissey, maybe in the modern day back then, the Smiths were, I mean, even Paul said the Smiths, he hadn't seen the energy like that since the jam days. Yeah. There's a wonderful quote from Steve White, from Drummer Whitey from the Style Council, who said... Yeah, lovely, lovely human being. I mean, so yeah. just a fantastic person. He said that, there, I think, on one of the nights, and maybe all of the nights, there were 11 bands on, and Kenny Wheeler said to him that nobody in the, in the crowd knew when to go to the loo because they thought they'd missed something. That's how good it all was. Yeah, it's true. It totally was. Like, people just didn't want it to end, you know. And it was this sort of social contract between young people and all of the artists and the politicians coming on to speak and being in the hallway at the end and at the beginning with stands and local communities having stands. It was a coming together to say, this is also Britain. This is also Britain. We can do this. For that time, in the backdrop of what was actually going on, it exuded an enormous amount of confidence. I, you know, I remember saying to Steve one time a few years ago, if we had social media now, what would it what would it be? You know, it would probably be a global movement, wouldn't it? So, you know. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'm right in thinking you kept a diary on the tours as well, did you? Yeah, I kept a diary. Uh, very much so. Have you read it back yeah. in recent years? I haven't actually, no, but I have got a couple of amazing boxes, just some great photography and footnotes and exchanges from me and Paul on political stuff, on his early writings when he was writing Money Go Round to donate the money, which he did. So, yeah, it, I, I think it's a period in, in history. I hate to say it because I don't even feel old, but it's, it's a period in history that I think has been underplayed and not catalogued enough. I don't feel that um, we've fully appreciated the sort of impact of bringing culture, community in the public arena together with politics to, you know, set a different tone, set a different narrative for a country. Do you think Red Wedge could exist now in, in that same way? That's a really interesting question. I'm asked that a lot. You know, I don't see why not. Um, but I think that, you know, the, 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 the multi-dimensional, multi-media, 24-hour platforms that we now operate in, you know, um, you would have to bring in a whole different host of, you know, people to be involved. And, you know, in a way, it's kind of legacy does carry on because, mm. you know, the influencer movement has got a lot of people in it who, you know, um, have something to say and use their their voice in different multimedia, you know, environments. Um, but I think, you know, people would just have to kind of try it and see what happens just in the same way. I definitely think that people shouldn't underestimate the role of culture in forming language and narratives. I mean, you know, when we saw Harry Styles speak about what was happening in the Black Lives Matter movement or actresses, you know, really big actresses and producers speaking up in the Me Too movement, that all comes from the same place that we began the journey from. They follow on. And sometimes you feel it's uh, the, I mean, it's quite a lot of bravery in having to do that sometimes, isn't it? It's like stepping in. People, and Junior, talks to us on, Junior talks to us on the podcast about his involvement and how his record label. Lovely person. Yeah, you know, his record yeah. label were, no, 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 this is going to ruin your career kind of thing. So, you know, yeah. sometimes people have to take these decisions to kind of speak out if they believe 100%, enough. You know? 100%. It's incredibly brave. People from a, a livelihood point of view have a lot to lose, but 
I think sometimes the combination of the right people coming together, and I think that there was the right combination of people that came together, particularly in the pre-Red Wedge and during Red Wedge with Neil Kinnett, whose support shouldn't be underestimated. The sort of generation of journalists that were up and coming in the music and art scene, I think, paved the way. And there was a lot of journalists and filmmakers involved in Red Wedge behind the scenes helping to build that narrative, to build that language, to build that identity around it. And I don't think people should underestimate their role either. The other thing I should talk about, you mentioned fashion earlier on and this love of fashion from a young age. Um, Mr. Weller obviously loves his clothes. Yeah, I think that was our coming together. (laughs) I was going to say, was there a connection? Yeah, outside of politics, I think that more than music was probably our coming together to become real firm friends. And Paul at that time, in terms of the music as well, we should talk about the style council music. I mean, he was pretty honest and pretty um, deliberate in saying what he wanted to say in terms of his lyrics with the style council as well, wasn't he? Bit risky, some would say, but I, I don't know another band who have written pop songs that you can sing along with that still have that kind of meaning. You know, it's amazing. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And you know, he was out there. You know, I mean, they made Jerusalem on Blake, who I'm a massive fan of, and you know, Paul and I would talk about a lot about what his contribution was in terms of a very early message about injustice and about building fairer societies, which essentially is what Jerusalem is. Mm. (laughs) Made that amazing video, which was straight out of like a post-Beatles kind of expression in the 1980s and was great fun and just brilliant. But yeah, I mean, you know, his relationship with Marilyn was way ahead of its time and was risky and should be completely applauded. You know, he was ahead of the curve in every single sense. Musically, brilliant. Culturally, way ahead. Stylistically, hard to be. Narratively, pretty perfect. So I think I've just given him like 10 out of 10. Um, (laughs) Are there any flaws? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I obviously, sometimes we sort of disagreed but you know that's what friends do don't they but on the whole I have an enormous debt of gratitude to him for that fateful meeting of him like contacting me and saying let's do something together we weren't quite sure what it was but we kind of started a journey together we grew up politically together yeah I think he was just a great guy and he was finding his way with a whole load of expectation on his shoulders you know it's a big deal it's a big deal how disappointing was that 87 election where you know because that had been a big focus for Red Wedge it was a big focus and obviously it was a disappointment I I personally felt it was going to be a step too far I felt that Neil Kinnock had fundamentally changed the course of the Labour Party, but whether or not the country was ready to change course with such literally a coarse and hardened media campaign, because we understood the value of conversation and media and the power of it. And I think that bringing in Peter Mandelson, Colin Byrne was the beginning of a very important journey, but it wasn't going to stop and start with Neil. It was going to be the beginnings of a new narrative. And I mean, our office was right next door to Peter Mandelson's. So I had a lot of interfacing with him and his team and a very helpful general secretary, Larry Whitty, who really liked Red Wedge and kind of protected us from all the less convinced people in the building of Labour HQ. And I could see that what they were trying to do with Neil and that whole emergence of communications in the Labour Party and Red Wedge trying to be helpful in that was the start of a very important journey for the mm. Labour Party. So much of successful politics seems to me, to, from talking to you as well, seems to be about communication. That communication's come up a lot, isn't it? And it's that engagement with people, the ability to listen and understand and empathy mm. and those kind of things seems to be lacking from our politics today, like from my observation. I feel that one of the things that is often missed in politics, in party politics, and especially right now, is that values have to be at the core that guides you. But so do ideas. 
And I think that we've seen a poverty of ideas and ambition in the Labour movement in the last decade. And they need to get a sense of inner strength and confidence about their ideas because we're going through the biggest industrial shift in 100 years and no political party has the divine right to exist. You know, you have to fight for your right. And quite rightly, because we live in an open democracy, and yet the value of labour, of work, of the right to have a good quality of life, to be ambitious, to have accessibility to options and opportunities has never been greater. So I'm looking to a modern Labour Party to be a party of ideas, to select candidates that they wouldn't normally think about selecting. It's very um, functionary. And it does a lot of good things. It's holding the government to account really well. But that's just the A that needs to get me to the B. My hope for them is that they move to that and that they're, you know, you've got to take a few risks. Neil Kinnock and Tony Blair both took risks in different ways. That's to formulate ideas. I mean, like, don't underestimate things like Shore Star. You know, I'm going to have provision for young people all over the country. I'm going to make the NHS the best in the world. And these things are ambitious. They might be simple, but they're ambitious. You know, you don't have to have these big, huge gestures to make big differences, but they've got to be consistent. So my kind of hope for Labour is that you understand that we're living now in what I call the fifth age. We've moved from agrarian capital to industrial capital to finance capital and now we are moving into an automated capital age what does that mean for us where are our modern alliances what does interdependency in the world mean and i don't really want to sort of get too into it but labor have to rethink what work and opportunity and quality of life means what does a modern economy and a modern state look like they have a responsibility to answer these questions for people. So they've done a great job at holding this this government to account who are unbelievable. And it's never been more challenging and more important. Absolutely. Hey, look, I could talk to you all day. This is fascinating, yeah, I have no. to say. Um, <laughs> I do you- don't really do politics much anymore, <laughs> so it's nice to have a chat. Oh, well, that's a shame because I think you're, you're, yeah, you can still play a huge role, I think, in this kind of stuff. That's sure. I mean, it must be, in terms of this angle of culture and the arts and stuff, that must, I mean, it must be hugely frustrating how the arts has been treated in recent mm. years. It's, and particularly as we went through the pandemic, musicians and people just, you know, struggle. Oh, it's just, it seems like it's, it's not valued as much as it clearly should be because it, you know, without music, We'd have very little in our lives. You know, it's such an important yeah. part for us, but it doesn't seem to be valued by our politicians in the way. Oh, I mean, there is an unfolding tragedy to the lack of support for music and the arts and theatre and modern film and access with a really healthy you know, set of cultural industrial policies in our country. Yes, we're rightly concerned with online safety, the digitalization of our society through DCMS, the ministry that, that holds it, but performance, support, access. It's not just all about getting on YouTube and being discovered. It's actually about giving access to young people in school, the opportunity to learn an instrument or to take part in music classes or theatre on the agenda so that we begin to formulate a society that slightly looks different. And Britain has always been really good at it. I mean, I think the UK animation business, before we kind of lost a lot of the tax breaks and Canada picked them up, was growing fantastically out of Bristol. You know, an independent animation community worth over six billion. Don't tell me that to the UK economy. Don't tell me that the arts don't make economic sense because they do. But if you take away the accessibility points, the points to have the great teachers in the schools who inspire people to do things, then you get a society that has gaps in it. And that's what we've got right now. We've got a society that has blips in it. And it has blips in it because there is bits missing in the chain 
And those bits that are missing in the chain is the ability to have a generation that have really strong cultural experiences that can build their identity around. That's really important. The other thing I was going to ask you about, I mean, you, we, obviously so much of Red Wedge was linked to the music and so much of what we've talked about is linked to the music and obviously Paul, you know, this being the podcast. Yeah. Um, do you think we kind of put too much on musicians like Paul and, and Paul Weller and Billy Bragg and Joe Strummer, people like that, to, you know, this, this spokesperson for a generation thing that, has been mentioned in the podcast and Paul, you know, Paul was labelled with at one point. That actually, yeah, we, we expect them to have a say, you know, we expect them to have a viewpoint. Yeah, really. I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, someone's got to do it, right? Why you not know? him? Yeah. <laughs> someone's got to do it. He was amazing. He probably felt the weight of it on his shoulders and never, certainly never asked for it because, you know, um, but someone's got to do it and, you know, my God, thank goodness he did, really. I just think that we have to have these voices in civil society. Otherwise, what what is civil society? Have you talked about Paul since in terms of like, you know, looking, I know he's not somebody who reminisces an awful lot, but have you talked about the impact that it had, particularly around like when New Labour got, when Blair got in and looking back on, because so much of that New Labour remit was your manifesto ultimately, right? Oh, yeah. Pretty much. It was written for them, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And Tony was the man to bring it as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you know, you'd have to ask other people that were involved, you know, what their view was. Would it have existed in the same way? Would he have understood the value of it in the same way without us? Possibly not. And I remember meeting him a couple of times. I always really liked him, by the way. And I liked his sort of ambition and his kind of can-do Actually, this is possible. Let's talk yeah. about it. But, you know, I obviously, after Neil and hung around for a while and did some things with the Labour movement more broadly, um, and it was lovely to be asked and, you know, carried on doing some bits and pieces, just Paul and myself. But I'd spent like the first 15 years of my young adult life just doing this. I wanted to do something else. And I never went into what was his first government, even though they asked me, which was hugely lovely to be asked. I think when you get that combination of people all coming together at the right time, amazing things can happen. And they definitely did. A couple of things to touch on before you go. So one is obviously the Style Council comes to an end, end of the 80s. Paul goes yeah. solo. I mean, a solo artist now. We talk about the music for over 30. This is his 30th year, I think, since that. Yeah, album, right? no, incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, what do you make of Paul as a solo artist and how much of connections have you had with him over the post-Red Wedge? After Red Wedge, we were in touch a lot and I moved to Spain for a while, for quite some time and settled down there with my then partner mm-hmm. of 12 years and Paul would come out with the family and see us and visit us and we kept in touch regularly and I would see him and Dee and then this subsequent partner and then we kind of lost touch a little bit when I heard John had passed away I was really upset you know and uh, sent messages heard back from Paul sent flowers to the family and to Nikki and Anne and um, yeah and then you know life moves on you know and the kids are grown up now and that and Leah in particular and just a lovely family mm. yeah really nice family hey look, I've loved chatting with you this has been so lovely I have two final questions for you before you go okay so the first one you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life it can be the jam the style council or solo what are you going to go with oh of course money go round that is such a great single right yeah there's no question and then the final question so the purpose of this podcast is not least to talk to amazing people like yourself who've had connections with Paul it's to dig into those memories and those stories but also um, I gave up my radio career 10 years ago with one big regret which was never getting to interview Paul Weller if I get to interview him what should I ask him what's he going to do in his next album just keep moving forward what's your next move that's you, what I would ask him he doesn't seem to write as many political songs or as many kind of does he do you think he feels like he's ticked that off and it's done I guess you can't unchange the relevance of something you can just move on and he's done that really well so just keep moving forward like what's his next thing and he should be really proud. He's got this amazingly big family of children as well. So obviously they frame his experiences. You know, we move on. I don't think that Paul Weller will ever be unpolitical. 
it's in his DNA. It forms his value system. Thanks so much for your time. I've really appreciated it. Thank you very much for inviting me. And yeah, very nice to meet you. My thanks once again to Anna Joy David, a fabulous guest, a real joy to spend time in her company. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, do share it on your social media channels, follow and leave a review as well. And I'd love to hear your memories of Red Wedge too. Get in touch. Don't forget to check out the show notes for this podcast as well. And you can read more on Red Wedge and Anna Joy David in the fabulous book, Walls Come Tumbling Down by Daniel Rachel, which was a massive help in the research for this podcast as well. Check out my chat with Daniel as well. Episode 43 of the podcast, another brilliant, funny, engaging, super smart guest on the podcast series so far. If you're a fan of the podcast, you can support it by buying a virtual coffee or getting some of our new exclusive official merchandise on my website. Just head to paulwellerfanpodcast.com and you can get in touch on social media, on Twitter, at WellerFanPod or on Facebook and Instagram, PaulWellerFanPodcast. On the next episode, one of the finest bass players to appear in the Paul Weller band over the years. And my goodness me, what a list that is. Yolanda Charles is my very special guest on the next podcast. Make sure you follow, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You don't want to miss this one. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.